Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast, where I read the journals so you don't have to. I mean, you probably should read them too, but who's got the time? This is episode 49 for the month of April 2021. If you like what you hear, please tell your colleagues about the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. It really, really helps. And if you have articles you want me to read, please send them to info at gipearls.com. All right, we got a few goodies for you today, including some guidelines and practice updates. So let's get to it, shall we? Anyone giving vancomycin to prevent C. diff in patients on antibiotics? I guess this wouldn't be something GI docs would be doing, but maybe it's happening out there. It turns out there is a randomized trial looking at this. It was open label, but that's okay in this case. Patients were randomized to either oral vancomycin or no prophylaxis while getting antibiotics for something else. Primary endpoint was incidence of C. diff. 100 patients, 50 in each arm. Oral vanco group had zero patients with C. diff, and no prophylaxis arm had six patients. That's 12%. That's a lot of people with C. diff. So low-dose vancomycin seems to do the trick. The NNT for this is very low, only nine. This is the drug that's taken once daily for a couple of weeks. So for the cost of 26 bucks per patient or so, you can prevent hospital admissions and recoup your investment 100 times over. What's the downside, you ask? Uh, VRE comes to mind. I can see anyone getting antibiotics now being peddled Vanco on top of it just in case. So you also will have some effect on the microbiome, of course. So Jonathan Pellet and Ying Tao from Sloan Kettering actually wrote a letter to the editor on this topic in response to this clinical trial. How much microbial community disruption are you risking in hopes of preventing C. diff? There's even a concern that prophylactic vanco use can paradoxically increase susceptibility to both colonization and true infection with C. diff later on. The other point that was raised in the letter is that follow-up was completed in less than half the patients who were not on prophylaxis, and a true difference would not be detectable with this data. And that's a valid criticism. Another strategy proposed is to limit the effect on the microbiome by lowering concentration of antibiotic that is reaching the cecum. Basically, what the letter is saying is that you're just moving the deck chairs on the Titanic if you're giving Vanco in hopes of preventing C. diff. Interesting points. What do you guys think? Should we do Vanco prophylaxis or is it a terrible idea? When doing upper endoscopy, we're really not looking for gastritis on biopsies, though that's what we find most of the time. Really, we're looking for cancer and maybe bleeding sources. Now that we have better lenses, cameras, and even narrowband imaging or other color imaging tools, we should be able to find even more lesions and tilt the curve more towards prevention. The next paper compared linked color imaging, the LCI, which is the Fuji-branded color imaging that uses lasers to standard white light imaging. And here they randomized patients with known cancer or current cancer to see if they can detect any more lesions. Randomized to white light versus the link color imaging again. 60 out of 750 patients in the fancy endoscopy ended up with some sort of finding, compared to 36 out of 750 in the regular endoscopy, so almost twice as many. Now, obviously that wasn't a blinded study, and maybe with the LCI you just took longer or looked harder. I guess we can say that this new technique is not terrible, but how good is it? It remains to be seen. Since it is a high-risk population to begin with, I think looking longer and more thoroughly with color or without makes sense. 
I do believe that these fancy lights, NBI, LCI, whatever, is a good idea and definitely worth developing further. I do use NBI during upper endoscopy in every case these days and for all locations where I'm looking at stuff. I think it's really helpful. But I wonder how this paper got into the annals of internal medicine. I mean, what the hell is the general practitioner supposed to take away from this? I think journals these days are just a place to publish stuff. Maybe we should all go with peer-reviewed online preprints and be done with it. Alright, this next one is a bit long, so get comfortable. There have been a lot of updates on diverticulitis, including a paper we reviewed a while back about no need for antibiotics in certain cases for diverticulitis. Here is the practice update from AGA regarding medical management of diverticulitis. And it's not a guideline per se, it's a practice update. So not much has changed, but it is worth reviewing. Keep in mind that the vast majority of diverticulitis in clinical practice is uncomplicated. I'd say 9 out of 10 cases. So let's go through the BPAs, the best practice advice that's given to us. BPA 1, consider getting a CT to confirm diagnosis. If you think it's diverticulitis, it's best to prove that it is diverticulitis and not something else, especially if the patient has never been imaged before. BPA 2, colonoscopy. Get a colonoscopy if the patient never had one or haven't had one recently. The BPA makes a cutoff of one year for colonoscopy, meaning if you hadn't had one within a year, you probably should get another one. But keep in mind that the risk of colon cancer is about 1 to 2%, so not super high. So be judicious about your colonoscopies. BPA 3. When should you do this colonoscopy? 6 to 8 weeks after the episode of diverticulitis. And that's reasonable. I think scheduling conflicts and patients' work and ride arrangements, 6 to 8 weeks, seems like a reasonable timeline. BPA 4. If symptoms suggest diverticulitis, but CT scan is without inflammation, and endoscopy doesn't show anything else, consider visceral hypersensitivity diagnosis. This is a bit tricky, since many times diverticulitis patients get bombed with antibiotics, get bloating, diarrhea, all sorts of complaints afterwards. I generally tell patients that expect things not to get back to normal for a few weeks, but I guess it is worth talking about visceral hypersensitivity at some point, at least according to this BPA. BPA 5. Clear liquid diet is recommended during acute phase of uncomplicated diverticulitis. In advance, this is tolerated. I think this gives you more of a sense of where patient is heading rather than actually helping the patient. It is unclear how changing diet would help heal diverticulitis itself, but generally it's a good idea just to put them on clear liquids just to see if they get better. BPA 6. Antibiotics should be given selectively rather than routinely. And of course, this is talking about a couple of recent studies that we talked about which suggest that antibiotics aren't always necessary, especially for milder cases. BPA 7. Now, obviously, you don't want to just avoid antibiotics altogether. This BPA states to give antibiotics to those who are frail and have comorbidities or refractory symptoms or vomiting or CRP is high or white count is high. Meaning anything that concerns you should probably give antibiotics. Maybe seeing something on a CT scan, like a fluid collection or long segment of diverticulitis. And when choosing antibiotics, this BPA recommends ciproflagyl or Augmentin. Duration, 4 to 7 days. BPA 8. Be careful with immunocompromised patients. Image early, treat early, and call surgeon when necessary. BPA 9. To prevent recurrence, put patients on high-quality diet. 
have them lose weight, be physically active, and quit smoking. And they also recommend reducing NSAIDs. All of this is sound advice for general health and makes a lot of sense. BPA-10 talks about genetic risk factors for diverticulitis, but obviously you're not going to do genetic testing on anyone for this. BPA-11, mesalamine, rifaximine, and probiotics. These things are useless for diverticulitis prevention, so don't use them. BPA-12, risk of complicated diverticulitis is reduced with recurrence usually. BPA-13, don't cut people's colons willy-nilly just based on number of episodes that they had. Think about it before you send them to a surgeon. And BPA-14, this is when you do decide when to cut somebody's colon. And this is a discussion of risks, benefits, basically how much of this interferes with patients' life and livelihood. And if the burden is high, maybe resection is a good idea. Oof, again, this is a long one. Not much has changed in the updates, and many of these are straightforward and important to know. And on the tail of that practice advice, here's a comparative effectiveness and harms of antibiotics for outpatient diverticulitis. This is another paper I found in the Annals of Internal Medicine. They did analysis of data from the IBM Watson Medical Claims Database. Most docs usually prescribe either metronidazole plus quinolone or augmentin. So no strong evidence favors one drug over the other. Some people say we shouldn't use flagyl because it has too many side effects. So which one is better, ciproflagyl or augmentin? Remember that best practice advice we just did recommended either or. And this paper was an analysis of two large databases with over 140,000 uncomplicated diverticulitis treatments. The one-year risk for hospital admission or urgent surgery was low, and there was no difference between these two antibiotics groups. Ciproflagyl therapy was seven to eight times as common as Augmentin, by the way. So, and this study found that flagyl-cipro combination versus Augmentin was associated with an increased risk of CDI, meaning C. diff, in older adults. Risk ratio was about two, so not super, super high, but noticeable but only in older adults, and if you put everyone together, that difference disappeared. So the practice update told us not to use antibiotics when you don't have to, and this study claims that maybe Augmentin is slightly better, but everybody's prescribing ciproflagyl anyway. I don't see this study from the database analysis changing the practice much. Maybe we should treat with either nothing for minor cases and with Augmentin when things are not as simple, but still not complicated. Hmm, maybe. Active hepatitis B infection obviously requires treatment in most cases. The two treatments that are first line are tenofovir and entecovir. Which one is better? They're both pretty good at getting the viral load down. And unlike adefavir and lamuvidine, there's hardly any resistance that develops. This next study is a meta-analysis looking at the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma developing when patients are treated with either tenofovir, fumarate, or entecovir. They looked at 15 studies over 60,000 patients and found that tenofovir was associated with a lower risk of HCC for a hazard ratio of 0.8. There was no difference in death or transplantation between the two drugs, so that is certainly interesting. Looking at the table of all the trials, almost every trial the hazard ratio crosses the midline, so when you put them all together you get a hazard ratio of 0.8. One of the comments in discussion is that previous studies have either favored tenofovir or showed no difference. Honestly, it seems that the effect seems real, 
but how much reduction you get in terms of absolute numbers, I couldn't figure this out. Problem, of course, is that if you have cirrhosis, you are much more likely to get hepatocellular carcinoma. And in some studies, the percent of patients getting HCC and cirrhosis subgroup was as high as 20%. So unless there is a head-to-head real-life comparison, meaning a clinical trial, which is not out of the realm of possibility since the use of these drugs is widespread, so I don't think you would be hard-pressed to find patients all over the world willing to take part in this hypothetical trial. Ultimately, I think the hazard ratio kind of tells me that there will be a statistical difference, but clinically speaking, viral suppression is going to matter much more, as well as the stage of your liver disease. As we know that getting the viral load down certainly protects you from HCC, but which drug would you choose if you had hepatitis B? I think I'll take either, honestly. Bowel prep for colonoscopy at home is miserable enough. Bowel prep in the hospital is even worse, mostly because usually when you are doing inpatient prep, you're already sick. This next study coming out of Italy is a prospective observational study looking at patients and prep-related factors that affected colon cleansing among inpatients. They looked at a thousand patients and about a third were not adequately prepped. Diabetes and antipsychotic drugs use was on top of the list. Length of stay of over seven days also mattered. And for some reason, large volume PEG was not helpful. So based on all the data they've gathered, they created an online calculator. I've included a link in the show notes, by the way. This calculator gives you predicted probability of adequate colon cleansing. Things in the calculator that do not favor patients being prepped on time are, again, seven days of hospitalization, bedridden patients, history of constipation, diabetes, antipsychotic drugs, large volume prep, and one-day prep as opposed to split prep dosing. I think one of the things missing from the calculator, and I'm not being facetious here, is nursing care. Depending on what's happening on the floor, good nursing care can rapidly accelerate prep time and solve problems as they arise. Best way to get patients prepped is to communicate with LNAs and nurses about the prep. Ooh, how about another guideline? How about that? This time it's the guideline, ACG colorectal cancer screening guideline for 2021. And I'm just going to read out the statements to you and maybe throw in my little spiel. Statement one, recommend CRC screening in average risk patients between ages 50 and 75. No surprise there. Statement two, suggest, note that it's not a recommend, but a suggest, suggest CRC screening for 45-year-old average risk patients, conditional recommendation. Hmm, should not be a conditional suggestion. Statement three, after age 75, individualized screening in this age group. I kind of like this. There are a few 80-year-olds that I do screening and surveillance colonoscopies. They're too healthy to stop. The rule of thumb that I'm kind of using for patients is that if you're planning on living another 10 years, just get it done, even if you're 90 years old. I mean, if you're doing a colonoscopy in a 45-year-old where the yield is very low, why not do it in a 90-year-old who's healthy? I bet the yield is much higher. Statement four, recommend colonoscopy and FIT as primary screening modalities. Now, that's an interesting one. This really limits the options. I've even tweeted it out. Oh, look, CT colonography and Colgard are out. But Asma Shukout, of course, corrected me with statement five. Statement five suggests FLEC-SIG multi-targeted DNA test, your Colgard, and CT colonography or colon capsule in those unwilling to undergo colonoscopy. 
So this is a bit of a catch-22, meaning that if your cologuard is positive and you still need to do a colonoscopy, how can you be unwilling to do it if you're agreeing to do it if it's positive? Doesn't make sense to me, which is why I said we're pretty much limited to the statement four, colonoscopy and fit. Statement six, septin nine is not good for CRC screening. Nothing new here. Statement seven, here, this is interesting. Statement seven, do fit every year and colonoscopy every 10 if all is negative. Not two years, but every year for fit. So this again is kind of aimed to favor colonoscopy, I think. I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I think this is what the guidelines are kind of driving at. I mean, who wants to do fit every year if you can get away with colonoscopy every 10? Statement eight, DNA test every three years and flex sig every five to 10 years, NCT colonography every five years, colon capsule every five years, basically defining the time intervals for all these second line tests. Statement nine, start at age 40 or 10 years before youngest affected relative got colon cancer and do it every five years. Statement 10, do genetic testing if you have lots of CRC in the family. Statement 11, and this is an interesting one again, for patients with first degree relatives over 60 years with CRC, recommend start at 40, but do colonoscopy every 10 years, conditional recommendation. I think most docs actually recommend five years these days, and there was even a discussion on the AGA forum about this. And all the GI docs there pretty much said they're going to ignore the guideline of 60 years, saying that if there's a first-degree relative in your family with colon cancer, doesn't matter how old they are, you're getting a colonoscopy every five years. I don't think that's unreasonable. Statement 10, do genetic testing if you have a lot of CRC in your family. Statement 12, if you have one second-degree relative with colon cancer, you're at average risk. Statements 13, 14, 15, and 16, these are not for patients, but really for endoscopists. Measure your ADR, sequel intubation rate, and withdrawal times. And if your ADR is low, specifically below 25%, then you should probably do something about it and not ignore it. Withdrawal time is still no less than 6 minutes, and sequel intubation rate is no less than 95%. Statement 17. Low-dose aspirin for those with over 10% risk of cardiovascular disease. And it's here because of the potential benefit to reduce risk of colon cancer. I think most GI docs are not going to be starting aspirin because, hey, we're not that great at estimating cardiovascular risk. And many of these patients are direct booking for colonoscopy. So you're not going to, so most docs are not going to dig through the chart to try to estimate your cardiovascular risk. Maybe we should. I don't know. Statement 18. Aspirin is no substitute for colon cancer screening. I can't believe we even need to say this. Statement 19, organized screening programs do better than disorganized ones. Statement 20, utilize patient navigators, patient reminders, and other clinical decision support tools. 21, mail and phone reminders and other things should be used to improve adherence and follow up for positive screening tests. So overall, nothing much changed. Colonoscopy is still king, with fit testing yearly as a substitute. All other tests are only if you really, really don't want a colonoscopy. But guess what? You're getting one anyway if any of those tests are positive. Keep in mind family history and screen early as necessary. 45 to 50-year-old patients should maybe get screening colonoscopy too. I think many insurance companies are changing their ways, at least in America, and we'll be covering this soon. And lastly, both endoscopists and systems where they work should be good enough to do the most good and cause least amount of harm in colon cancer prevention programs.
So on the whole, this is a really good guideline and pretty well balanced, I'd say. I like it. Well, that is all I have for you today. Sorry for the delay. I was trying to get some speakers lined up for a couple of interesting articles related to hepatology. So stay tuned for those in the near future. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. Again, if you have articles that you want me to read, please send them to info at gipearls.com. I do not subscribe to every journal, and sometimes I rely on your generosity on sending me PDFs. As always, thanks to those of you who've left reviews on iTunes. It goes a long way. Thanks again. Bye-bye.